0: The Lord Jesus is teaching about the end, his teaching in this um, section uh, is very much centered around the end of the age. And so our reading in verse 14 picks up on that. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let us now turn to the letter to the Galatians chapter 6. We're going to read the verses 1 through 10 together. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing he deceives himself but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches do not be deceived god is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In our text this morning is those last two verses. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever been downtown at some town or city on your way to an appointment and you were stopped by someone who asked you for money? Or maybe you stopped at an intersection and you saw a homeless person standing holding a cardboard sign that said, homeless, spare some change, every bit helps. What did you do? And how did you feel about what you did afterwards? In today's text, we read that we are to do good to everyone. But what does that actually look like in practice? Well, as we work our way to the end of this letter, we're finding that it's surprisingly practical. We've spent a lot of time on doctrine, especially in chapters 3 and 4 and maybe you thought to yourself that all doctrine was an abstract theological point but hopefully as time went on you've discovered that that it is surprisingly practical and it becomes even more practical here at the end and we should not be surprised at that because the whole gospel is practical it is a beautiful practical gospel that we've been given we should not be surprised when it actually speaks into our life and into very specific situations that we encounter. The gospel is really that, what, what drives everything. It's the gospel we've learned so far that will help us to understand the command in these two verses. And the gospel will also need to shape our response to that command. And if we don't see that clearly, then we can become completely overwhelmed can become overwhelmed by the command to do good to everyone. So let's look at that from the perspective of the gospel together. God calls us to do good to everyone, and we'll see that that means that we are to do it for the right reason, and also to do it at the right time. So maybe we can take a very big step backwards and ask ourselves the question, why do good in the first place? Some people might think, well, the the point is to be a good person. They have this vague notion of, of what's right and wrong, and they think as long as you live a generally good life, then you should be okay. And there are actually sometimes also people in the church, Christians, who think that way. It's not what the Bible teaches, though. It is true that there is a relative sense in which some things are better than others. That's obvious to anyone. But, but nobody is good in an absolute sense. Scripture says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is the verdict of Scripture over our lives. Outside of God's grace. Apart from God's grace. And there's nothing that you can do to change that. True goodness is measured by the yardstick of God Himself, and He is infinitely good. And all have fallen short of His goodness. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the one thing that all people have in common, whether they're on the giving end or the receiving end, whether you're the guy driving the car or the guy holding the cardboard sign. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short. We're all, by nature, opposed to God. In fact, when you deny that, you're merely confirming that it's true. Because to deny what God says about us makes Him is is to call Him a liar. In First John five verse ten, it says, "Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar." because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And then it makes no difference if you occasionally do something good or not, because by nature there is still this rebellion, this inherent opposition to God underlying your life. And there's no way out of that on your own. And that is why the gospel is such good news, because the gospel says that God sees this, God knows this, God wants sinners to be right with Him. It's not just sinners who occasionally want to be right with God. It is God who, in His burning love for His people, wants them to be right with Him. And He knows they cannot do it on their own. That's why He sent Jesus Christ into the world to live and to die in our place. In Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, remember that wonderful verse. It said, But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus is the eternal, natural Son of God, the true Son. He was born into this world at a time that God decreed. He lived a life that was completely unblemished. He died bearing the burden of God's heavy wrath against sin, And all those who confess their sins, all those who ask God for forgiveness in Jesus' name, are forgiven. They're reconciled with God. They are no longer under the curse of the law. They are no longer under God's judgment. They are redeemed. They belong to God. And listen, when God accepts you, He accepts you completely. There is no probation. As it says in the Lord's Day 23, God, without any merit of my own, Out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, and he grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. In other words, we are already, if you belong to God, you are already regarded not just as righteous but as good. There is no probation. We are his dear children. Now, all of this is hopefully familiar to you, but it's good to go over the basics again because it is so easy for us to profess one thing but live another. And the one area where you see that the most clearly is in this whole area of doing good. The whole letter to the Galatians is about how your works Your deeds, your good deeds, cannot add to your standing before God in any way. And we know that on a theological level, but how does that knowledge, uh, how do we act out of that, do we act out of that on a practical level? Think about the last time that you did something good for someone else. How did it make you feel? You felt good about yourself, didn't you? You felt better about yourself than you did before. Now think about the last time that you received help from someone else. Maybe you were incapacitated for a while because of an illness or some other condition and various people came and dropped off meals at your house. Maybe someone came and cleaned your toilets for you. Maybe your spouse had to do extra work around the house while you were in the hospital. And undoubtedly there were family members and friends helping you out but you weren't able to do much yourself. Now, how did that make you feel? Some people would answer, guilty. Makes me feel guilty. I hate accepting help from other people. They're very kind, but it it makes me feel guilty. And they know it's not logical, but they still have this pervasive sense of guilt that haunts them. Now, why, think about this, why would receiving help from other people make us feel guilty? Is it possible that somewhere deep in the recesses of our heart, we still feel that we need to earn our place in this world? Theologically, we know that we don't. We understand that, but practically, practically, Our heart is telling us something different. Is that because it's difficult for us to accept grace? But let's run with this. If it's difficult for us to accept grace, what is our motivation for doing good? Is it because in our hearts there's still some merit attached to doing good? It's incredible, isn't it? The whole point of this letter was to explain to us that our good works merit nothing in the eyes of God, and yet when it comes down to our actual behavior, it's still very difficult to get away from that kind of merit-based theology. And it's not good if you do good for the wrong reasons. So how can we do good for the right reason? Well, one very important thing to remember is that all good works are really God's works. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us that we should walk in them. So it's God's work. God prepares His work for us, and then He calls us to participate. And that radically changes your reason for doing it. When we, when we look at it from that angle, we become more and more invested in his work. We ask ourselves, what is God doing here already in this situation? How can I participate? You see, it's a very different mindset. That desire to participate in God's work is because God has worked in us first. To put it in in theological terms, it's the fruit of sanctification, not the grounds of justification. If you have one of my catechism students in your family, ask them what that means. It's the fruit of sanctification, not the grounds of justification. Or to put it differently, it's what you do because you're right with God. It's not what you do to become right with God. Now, having said all of that, God does promise us a reward for obedient service, and He he does that here as well. It says very clearly, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And all of this, of course, is in the context of what went before, the idea of reaping and sowing and um, all of that put put against the background of of, uh, the flesh and destruction and eternal life. So, doing good here is compared to sowing, and when you sow and when the conditions are right, there is always a harvest. And so God promises us that harvest, and he does it in other places in Scripture as well. But what does that reward look like? Now, there are already many ways in which we experience a reward for the good that we do in this life. You think about the last time that you did something that helped someone else. You have uh, the satisfaction of reflecting the image of God to the people around you. You have the satisfaction of seeing sin constrained sometimes and suffering alleviated. So in that sense, you already have a reward, in a sense, in this life for doing good. But that's not the harvest that he's speaking about in verse 9. This is the harvest that we receive after death. And that is not something that we think about very often. But Scripture encourages us to do so. It says you don't need to be afraid of this. This is meant for your... Encouragement. This is meant to give you perspective in life. We read, the, we read the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, and he made it very clear that there is a reward for what we do here on earth. Look, for example, at the parable of the talents. The master, we read about that, right? Matthew 25, and the master called these people to give account for what he entrusted them with. The first one had received five talents and he doubled his investment. The second one had received two talents. He doubled his investment as well. This parable reflects a kind of harvest that we can expect to reap. If the harvest has to do with what we sowed, and what we sowed was a faithful discharge of our responsibilities, then the reward is not that we get to spend eternity doing nothing, The reward is that God gives us even more responsibilities suited to our renewed capacities in glory. The same thought is reflected in Matthew 24, verse 46 to 47. Here Jesus said, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So here the master, that's Jesus, comes back and the servant is set over all of his possessions. And again, a similar parable in Luke 19, the parable of the ten minas. A noble man goes away to a far country to receive a kingdom. He receives a kingdom and then returns to settle accounts with his servants. And the nobleman is, of course, the Lord Jesus. The servants are his people. And standing in, starting in Luke 19, verse 16, we read, The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, "And You are to be over five cities. So you see, the one who has been entrusted with much and who lived up to that responsibility was entrusted with even more. And the same was the case of the one who was faithful with a little. And it is worth noting, by the way, that the Lord does not expect us to do what he has called others to do. In the parable of the minas, the master didn't ask the man with five minas why he hadn't earned ten. And in the parable of the talents, the master didn't ask the man with two talents why he hadn't earned five. He rewards each person according to what he has done. Each person is expected to live up to what they've been entrusted with. And both received a similar reward. They received more work, more responsibility, which corresponded to their God-given capacities. So this is not about being stretched beyond your means forever and ever. This is about being able to live up to your fullest potential. That's what it means. Not everyone has the same ability or the same capacity. And in this life as well, we are, we are all called to do good. We are not all called to do the same good. We are not all called to do everything. So we should not feel guilty when one person is able to do more good in a given area than we are. We're not called to be all things to all people, but we are called to be faithful in our respective areas of responsibility. And that was what the final servants in our reading from Matthew 25 did not do. The reason why the final servant is condemned is because he turned out to be someone who didn't want to be part of the kingdom at all. It's not that he did his best and in the end it wasn't enough. It's that he wasn't interested in his master's priorities at all. He just wanted to be left alone to do his own thing. And so he was after everything was taken away from him. God calls us to do good to everyone. And there's grace in that call. Because when we begin to obey, we learn more about ourselves. We learn more about what makes us tick. What shapes our relationship with others? What is central to that relationship? You start to think about those things. Is it, is it guilt? Is it need? If you're, if you're dealing with someone else... You're doing good to someone else. What is standing in between you? What's your your point that you both have in common? Is it your sense of guilt? Is it their sense of need that is all that they focus on? Or is it the gospel which is between you, which unites you, in which you both find your identity, and then only then seeing your needs in that context? See, our motivations are not always clear to us. Watch what happens the next time that you do something for someone and you get met with ingratitude or hostility or they take you for granted. Watch what happens to your heart. All this stuff comes to the surface that you thought, whoa, I didn't didn't know that that was there. And you start to question your motivations. And you realize that two people can do the same thing and be motivated by two very different reasons. Someone who was running because she's in a race is different from someone who's running because she's being chased by a a leopard, right? They're both running. They might even be running in the same area, but they're not doing it for the same thing, and there's going to be a different outcome for each. They're not doing it for the same reason, and there's going to be a different outcome for each of them. And in the same way, two people might do the same good thing but be motivated by very different reasons. And sometimes that becomes apparent over time, and maybe sometimes we need to repent of our reasons. Maybe reflecting on these things together is making us realize our motivations are not always right. We all fail, and sometimes we do good, even the good that we do with the best of intentions is still done for the wrong reasons. And that's where the gospel is so beautiful because the gospel already says to you look, you belong to God. You're not on probation. You belong to him forever. And everything that happens in your life, everything that you do, functions in the context of that relationship between you and God. And salvation is so thorough that God can even redeem your misplaced efforts. Maybe you didn't do it for the right reasons. Maybe it meant well, but in the end you still did it. And God still uses our broken efforts to accomplish his work in some way. God has his own way in our lives, in this world, in world history, and he's not limited by our limitations. He's not held back by our sins. The whole story of the Bible is is about that. The, The greatest sin of all, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, was used by God to accomplish the greatest good. There was something that was done for terrible motives. And the Lord... Worked it to good. The Lord has his own ways of working in our lives and working with with what we bring to him. And and he calls us to be faithful and to learn from from the things that, that we do. We have to understand our our life is not defined by who we are at any given point in time. Your life is not one point. If you, if you struggle with a sense of failure about specific things in your life, your life is not about that one point. Your life is linear. We're going to be talking about time soon. Time is linear. That sets us apart from, from for example, Hinduism, which has a circular view of time. For us, time is linear. That's what the Bible says. And we we are in that time for a while and things develop and happen in our lives during that time. So it's silly to define ourselves by any one point in time. You have got to look at this as a whole process, as, a, as, as an ongoing process. A process that includes good and bad motivations, failure, redemption, success, all mixed up together. And over all of that, God's promise in Philippians 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you... Remember, it's God's good work in you. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will finish His work in us. And for that very reason, He calls us to carry on doing good. And so we operate on faith, even if we know that we're going to fail, even if the results are not immediately visible, even if we're prone to giving up. Feeling discouraged is not bad. If you're feeling discouraged this morning, it's not bad. It's an opportunity to reassess our motivations if we look carefully. So God has called us to do good to everyone. We've seen that we need to do good for the right reason. Now, let's see that we are to do it at the right time. Time. We're going to talk about time. Time is very important in the Bible. All of time after the fall into sin is building up to the revelation of God's Son in history. And then with Christ, a totally new time has dawned. God's reign has become visible through Christ. When He came, He preached that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That indicates we are living in the time between his first and his second coming. It's a time in between. It is a limited time. It is running out. And when he returns, that time will be completed and his coming will be a catastrophic event as foretold in the prophets and in the book of Revelation. During this limited period, we have, by God's grace, been given time. And that time is limited, and so there's a sense of urgency, a sense of time pressure underlying our passage, as it is in many places in the Bible. Whether you pay attention to it or not, the season is changing. The time for harvest is at hand. The time of His return and glory is coming. And you see that in the changing of the seasons here as well. We have seasons here in Western Australia, maybe not as pronounced as they are in Canada, where it really is a night and day difference. But We have seasons, and you can start to see, depending on where you are at in the month what, what, and in the year, what season is coming. You see little clues, and, and, and so we're in a season, we're in a time, and, and we can see it in world history as well. The, the time for harvest is at hand, the time for His return, and glory is coming, and there will be a final judgment. And there are many places in the Bible that remind us of passing time and that approach of God's final judgment. So we have time right now. The judgment is not here yet. By God's grace, he warns us and he calls us to use our time carefully. We are to make the best use of the time that we can. Judgment day is coming. That time will reveal that time, that time of judgment, that catastrophic point will reveal whether we used all of the time before that effectively. So what are you living for? It's easy, especially for youth. It's easy to live for yourself. You have money, no responsibility, minimal bills to pay, a phenomenal amount of energy. You have it made. It'll never be this good again. Well, it will get better in other ways, but this amount of energy, this amount of flexibility, you will not ever have that again. So what are you spending this on? Are you actively doing good? Are you, the the time when you will reap a set already, do you realize that? When you're young, you have this, this sense that time will never end, that it's elastic, that there's always room for more, but think about the seasons, you know? You can think that, but the seasons are progressive. They don't change. The time of God's judgment is set already the time when your life will be evaluated? Is set already what are you spending your time on? God has entrusted you with his time. Are you, are you using it well? Are you actively doing good? How are you using the time in between creation and recreation? How are you using this incredible opportunity of your life that you have? Because you have the gift of life. You have new life regeneration. And that gift comes with responsibility. The responsibility was to fill the whole world with the fruit of the Spirit and so fulfill the law of love. That was already prophesied in Isaiah 27 verse 6 when he said, "In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and listen carefully, fill the whole world with fruit. That was the, the end goal, that Christ would make for himself a new people a new Israel, and that these people would fill the whole world with fruit. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. That's what God redeemed us for. And so doing good is not a box to tick. It is not an option on an otherwise self-centered life. It's fundamental to what you do. So to give up is a form of neglect. Let us not grow weary of doing good, he says. We all have times when we grow weary but growing weary in the first half of that verse, verse, verse 9, is connected to giving up in the second half. Let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season. We will reap if we do not give up. Growing weary is connected to giving up, and that's not permitted. So growing weary is not a reason to let go. It's a motivation to hold on even tighter. It's as if he's saying, whatever else happens, don't let it come to that. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't do it. And you know, if all time is under God's reign, then the opportunity, the time to do good is divinely fixed as well. And so when, when you have these opportunities to do good, you can embrace them confidently knowing that God gave us that time. He will give us the resources to use that time well, even if those resources are limited because we all have limitations And we should not, we should not think we can be all things to all people, do all good things at all times everywhere. Because we have created inbuilt limitations. We have needs for things like sleep, for example. You, you cannot do good while you are sleeping. And uh, these are not, um, not all of these limitations are bad. These are not post-fall limitations. This was how we were created. We are embodied and flesh creatures with limitations. So, time is limited. Our energy is as well because of how God made us. It can be fatiguing to do do good. Even if you do it for the right reason, even if you do it at the right time, it is still fatiguing. For instance, when someone has to care for someone else over a long period of time, this is a noble thing, but there is also a phenomenon known as caregiver burnout. Burnout is defined as a state of emotional exhaustion that results from failing, wearing out, or feeling totally used up due to too many demands on one's energy, strength, or resources. And maybe this resonates with some of us. You know, feeling totally used up due to too many demands on one's energy, strength, or resources. You might think that describes me all the time. If so, that's not a good thing. Caregiver burnout is that to an even greater extent and it is a real thing and often happens under the surface because people look after each other. It's not a very public thing and we, we kind of assume um, no news is good news, right? But then we need to step back and think again, what does it mean to do good? And we talked about that already, uh, partly the reason for doing good. But, but the time to do good is a factor as well. We have this limited time. Are we, are we to do good at all times? On what basis do we say no to people? On what basis do we say yes? Again, what's our motivation? Are we we motivated by a sense of guilt? Are we trying to compensate for something? How does all of this fit into the passing of time before judgment day? You're limited. And the fact is, there will always be things that you need to say no to. Even in your family, you cannot bear everybody's burdens. Saying yes to one need means that In that moment, you say no to any other potential need. Imagine a a mother with two daughters and they both phone her in the same span of an hour. They both need her to help with the kids or whatever it is right now. Um, She cannot be in both places at the same time. To say yes to one means she has to say no to the good that she could have done to the other. So which ones, which needs will you bear? Which deeds will you do? And it brings us back to motivation. Why do we do this? Let's think about mothers. Mothers sometimes feel guilty. Maybe mothers often feel guilty. Some mothers feel they're not doing anything, whether that be in their family, in the church, or in the world. They're running themselves into the ground, but they feel they're not doing anything. Interesting that. But look, look, when you're looking after kids, especially little kids, you don't have resources or time for much else. And here's the thing you need to remember. These children are part of the household of faith. You've got to think of your household as a circle. And we've talked about this in the premarital class as well, in terms of your marriage as a circle, small circle, and then your household, when there's kids in it, are are a circle as well. And all of those are in the much bigger circle of the household of faith. So, your household is a little circle in the big circle of the church, and you should not see these two things as separate. You should not think, well, you know, I'm so tied up with, with my kids that I can't do anything for the church. No, your kids are part of the church. This, this little circle is in the big circle. So that's false guilt. And it seems that many young couples today feel the pressure for the mother to work as well. Um. It's not even always finances. It seems that, that this is a, a growing trend in our midst. A young couple's feeling the pressure for the mother to work as well. Um, and obviously, I mean, every situation is different, you know. Um, and there may be reasons for that, but we're talking here about general trends. That there's a general sense of pressure on young couples, social expectation that they ought to, ought to work somehow. Ought to be involved in the world, ought to do all this different stuff. And our passage encourages us to look at this from a totally different way. It's saying, look, your life right now, your family, your relationship with your husband is not a weight holding you back from a career, but a God-given opportunity to do good to the little members in the household of faith in your circle of responsibility. In fact, Scripture says whether you're a mother or not, your family is your primary responsibility. It says that to fathers as well. Your family is your primary responsibility. And when you work, it is so that you can support your family and do good to the household of faith and to um, the community at large. But your primary responsibility is not to help your company get ahead in the world. That is not your primary responsibility. Obviously, we work hard, and if the company gets ahead, this is good. But that is not what life is about. And... If you work for someone who thinks that it is, find another job. Your family is a primary responsibility, and then your extended family. Scripture is clear on this. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 to 4, Paul writes, Honor widows who are truly widows. Listen, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In those days, widows and orphans were the most disadvantaged people that there were. And their care is a responsibility, first of all, not of the church, but of the family. In verse 8 of that passage, Paul goes on to say, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith. He is worse than an unbeliever. So family has to look at family, but listen, it does not stop there. If, if the family's overwhelmed, the church ought to come alongside of them. And a wise elder or a wise deacon will ask not just the care receiver, but the caregiver, how are you really coping? And then you as caregiver need to be honest and say, you know what? Um, I'm not. So then there's circles of responsibility. God does not command us to take care of all needs at all times, but the proper order is first your household, then the household of faith, then the world. So if you're not caring for family members, if there's no immediate needs in your family, then you look at the church, the broader circle. Maybe there's an opportunity there to come alongside someone else who's struggling in their family to help carry their load. And if you don't know of any unmet needs there or the opportunity to share someone else's load, then we look to the world. Now, some people might say, you people, you free or foreign people, you only look after your own. That's actually very beautiful because the church is the embassy of the kingdom of God. The church is the one place where you should always feel safe, always feel cared for, always feel loved, where others always have your back. It should also be the place where you can see the glorious effects of God's reign most clearly, also when it comes to relief for those who are struggling. Both those church members who need care and those who give care are God's people. God loves his people, and because he loves his people, he calls us to embody that love and to do good to each other and to everyone. We are to do good for the right reason. We are to do it at the right time. But in the end, the challenge that this passage gives to us all young and old, is, are you willing to do it? Do you understand what this means? Are you willing to do it? As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then God's promise to you is, in due season, you will reap. Amen.